Well, after only <clears throat> 10 sermons or so, we finished up Acts 10 last week. The chapter was all about the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And as I was reading various commentaries preparing to preach uh, chapter 11, the first line in the commentator uh, Daryl Bach's essay was, The divine initiative meets with criticism. Now that sentence really leapt off, left off the leapt off the page. The divine initiative meets with criticism. The great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles was met with criticism, skepticism, jealousy, and even anger. And now I would have not been surprised to see somebody say Peter returns to Jerusalem and meets with skepticism. But no, Daryl Bach got this exactly right. The divine initiative meets with criticism. It wasn't Peter's doing whatsoever that he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember that God came to him in a vision. At the same time, God was coming to a vision, coming through a vision to Cornelius in, in Caesarea. And he comes to uh, Peter and says, Peter, I'm sending you, and you're going to give the gospel message to these people that I send you to in Caesarea. It had nothing to do with Peter's inspiration, but it was the divine, it was God, the divine initiative. And this is what is going to meet with criticism when Peter goes back to Jerusalem. This week, chapter 11, uh, 1 through 18, reads this way, and it's a big hunk of scripture. We're not going to cover but the first three verses and the last three verses today, because the middle is taken up with Peter telling the story again how God came to him to send him to Caesarea. So since we covered that in detail, we don't need to cover it again, except that I am going to read it again. So here it is. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat, or sacrifice and eat, as it actually says. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven, and behold, at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, like I said, that's a big hunk of scripture, but we're going to just cover the parts that we have not covered in the past. We've looked at the visions given to Peter and Cornelius in death, so today uh, let's just start at verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Uh, Chapter 10 concluded with the new Christians in Caesarea asking the apostle Peter to stay with them. As it says, for some days after they were baptized, it would not be too much for us to assume that their purpose in this request was for further teaching from the apostle on Jesus, to to give them further teaching. I mean, uh, the original teaching, it was the gospel story, and it was what was called the caturgma of the apostles. It was the apostles' teaching. That is what they normally gave. Peter decided to remain with them, and while he was there, word quickly traveled back to not only Jerusalem, but the rest of Judea about the working of the Spirit in Caesarea among the despised Gentiles. And remember that these were especially despised Gentiles. They were Roman soldiers. They were the occupying army. It would, you know, think about... Europe being occupied by Nazi Germany in World War II, they were truly despised. I don't think the, uh, the Romans were any less despised, possibly even more so, because it was even a religious thing with the Jews in Israel. Scripture doesn't say how long Peter stayed in Caesarea, uh, but Codex D, so for, for the scientists among us, Codex D, is a 5th century Roman manuscript, and it's a parallel scripture in both Greek and Roman side by side, with commentary uh, that was recorded in the 15th century by a Calvinist, as a matter of fact. It records that Peter remained in Caesarea for a considerable time, and that he did a great deal of preaching throughout the... um, throughout the regions surrounding Caesarea. However long Peter stayed in Caesarea, it was long enough for for word to circulate of the events there. And remember, there's no telephone, no telegraph. It celebrated, it uh, circulated by word of mouth and people traveling throughout the area. So, was it a few days? It was probably more than a few days. Uh, It was probably at least a couple of weeks or a month for the word to get out. 
The Apostle Peter was at this time still based in Jerusalem. He has not left Jerusalem yet. The early church was still centered there. So he was returning home after his trip to first Lydda. I mean, we've been in, in uh, Joppa and Caesarea so long, I forgot, almost forgot about Lydda uh, and the healing that he did there. When he got back to Jerusalem, he found himself at odds with the Judaizers, the circumcision party. Now, these were Jewish Christians who still held a Jewish law. Remember, of course, that the first Christians were thoroughly Jewish. That's all they were. They were they observed all the Old Testament Jewish laws and customs. In fact, the Old Testament wasn't even the Old Testament. Okay? There was no New Testament. It was just the Testament. It was the Torah. It was the Tanakh. There was no New Testament. So, so these Jews, they were still going to the temple or the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday, and they were meeting with the uh, church on the Lord's Day, which very early was Sunday. They were Jews, but Jews who believed that the Messiah had arrived and was Jesus of Nazareth. They were truly the first Messianic Jews. Okay, Very Jewish, very Messianic. The circumcision party, is uh, they were so called because they believed that all Christians needed to become Jews before they became Christians. They're, they had to become part of the Jewish religion. And as we've seen before, there weren't a lot of male... Uh, converts to Judaism because of the little thing known as circumcision. A lot of women became uh, Jewish converts, but not a lot of men. But these Judaizers believed that Gentile men who wished to become Jews needed to become circumcised first. And it was these people who confronted Peter when he returned to Jerusalem. So the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, I just point out something that some other commenter that I read pointed out. We don't see that he ate with them in scripture. Okay? We can assume they did. You'll note that uh, while the scripture does not relate the eating together uh, of Jew and Gentile here uh, in Caesarea when we were studying that, it is to be assumed that Cornelius, as a generous host, and we know him to be a generous man, and we know he was a righteous man, Cornelius, as a generous host, would have fed them from Jerusalem, uh, the men from Jerusalem, while they were there. This, in fact was the point of the prohibition of a Jew entering the house of a Gentile to begin with. It wasn't the house that they were that caused the prohibition. It was the fact that there was unclean food within the house and it was hard to remain ceremonially clean inside the house of a Gentile. So it wasn't the house of a Gentile that was the problem. It was the food inside the house of the Gentile. At this accusation, Peter then relates to the, uh, those men all that led up to his visit to the centurion in Caesarea, and then what God did. And this brings us back to my opening statement. 
these men were not in fact criticizing Peter. They were criticizing what Daryl Bach called the divine initiative. They were criticizing God. How dare God send Peter to the Gentiles in Caesarea? Okay? That's not what they said. They accused Peter. But what they were saying was, how dare God send Peter to Caesarea? How dare he send him to the home of a Gentile? How dare God have Peter eat with uncircumcised men? But you know, in some way you have to sympathize with the circumcision party in all of this. In our Old Testament readings for the last, I don't know how long, starting in Genesis, well, we've covered uh, Leviticus, we're in Numbers, we're soon to see Deuteronomy. We saw page after page, okay, of exactly how God said he wanted to be worshipped. We haven't gotten to the building of the temple by Solomon, which is really fascinating, you know, go to X place in Lebanon and cut and dress the uh, cedars and bring them back and gild, gild the posts, all these different things. But we've seen enough. We've seen the instructions for the garbing of the priests. We've seen what they're to do. We've seen who they're to be. We see what food they're supposed to eat. They're meticulous. They have been given page after page after page of how God wants to be worshipped. And, and don't get me started on the section on leprosy. You know, you know that's my favorite part in Leviticus. Um, God specified everything in Jewish life, and now God has begun a new work in the world. Okay? Something new is, is happening. So the Jews have worshipped God for 2,000 years in a certain way. Following the rules God set forth for his worship. And then, at the prophesied time, he sent his son Jesus the Messiah to set up his kingdom on earth. Peter, the apostles, and the disciples are the representatives of that kingdom to the world. The circumcision party must have noted that with the coming of the kingdom of God, no new set of rules had been given. Okay? There's no new set of what to do. You cannot find so much as an order of worship in the New Testament. We don't have one. There is apparently in the Didache uh, some, and I meant to bring bring it today to do the communion service the way the first century church did it because it's recorded in the uh, didache. I'll do that soon. I've got it printed out. I just forgot to bring it. But there, I want you to know that worship service, the words worship service are not found in the Bible. Okay? Not. So in light of that fact that no dramatic reordering of the elements of worship uh, or the temple or anything to do with the Jewish religion was laid out. There was no reordering done. So was the circumcision party so off base to assume that this new Christ worship 
the new Christian church should follow the rules that God gave for the Hebrews. After all, they consider themselves Jews. There were no new rules. What were they supposed to do? I mean, just look at Leviticus, look at Deuteronomy, look at how God had laid out for Jewish society and Jewish worship to look like. We say it now in the light of the New Testament that the New Testament enlightens what the Old Testament says, that that we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We also say that the law was given by God to show the Hebrews that they could not keep the law perfectly and thus have salvation on their own endeavors. Uh, Would it make any sense to Old Testament Jews that the law and the temple were just a foreshadowing of God's kingdom yet to come through his Messiah. I mean, they can't see it. They do not know that this is what's going on. So, a continuation of Jewish tradition in a Christian context would make perfect sense to Jewish Christians. Jesus said that his uh, that he came not to abolish the law, after all, but to fulfill it. But what would that have meant to an Old Testament mindset. We can look at what Jesus did. We can look at 2,000 years now of teaching. But what does it look to the Old Testament mind? In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus is in Samaria. And it's interesting how much of our story, how much of the story of the redemption through Christ takes place in Samaria. Remember, Samaria is despised. Samaria was conquered by foreign invaders. A lot of their people was taken away and resettled by the Gentile nations. They were a mongrel nation. They intermarried. They were despised so much by the Jews that they really were discouraged from worshiping in Jerusalem. So they set up a counterfeit Judaism so that they could worship God. They had their own temple. They had their own priests. They had everything. And today, what I'm about to read, Jesus has come to that spot. He's come to the foot of the mount that the temple is built because they had their own temple mount, okay? It wasn't just that they built a temple. I mean, they they were duplicating things as much as they could. So Jesus comes upon a Samaritan woman at the town well, and here's how the Gospel of John recounts the episode. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the well that Jesus sat at was at the foot of, as I say, the uh, counterfeit temple. And continuing on, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, you notice that she knows what Jews think of her. Uh, and she's bold enough to say, you know, you're asking me? I'm a Samaritan. You're asking me for a drink? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So notice that they're drawing, this is Jacob's well, she's putting herself back to the father of the Israelites. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, if not in a parable, in couched language. But the message that he's giving her has not been given to Israel yet. These are not things that have been spoken to the Jews. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is speaking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we have all of this stuff. 2,000 years that the Jews have been given. And Jesus says, you're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is our directive. There is no list of these rules like the Jews had in the, in, in the Old Testament. Because Christianity is, I've said this one other time, and Aaron said, you've got to watch how you say these things. Christianity is not a set of rules. It is something that is supposed to be our life. It is supposed to be inside of us. We don't just worship one hour a week. Our life is to be one of worship. As I said, there is, there is no word for worship service 
in the New Testament. We are looking at it. We don't even have a description of a worship service. Okay, We know what elements they did when they worshipped God. But worship, it means the same thing. The word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I didn't write these down. I, I have so much that I didn't put into here because we would have been here for two hours today with, with this thing. But worship means basically to fall down before God, to, to bow towards Him. The word in the Greek from the New Testament is to kiss forward. It's almost to blow a kiss, okay? But its true meaning is also to fall down before God. Worship, the service, we'll get into some of this. Service, the word in Hebrew and in Greek means work. Okay? Who was in the service of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, temple? It was the Levites. It was their work. This is what they did. But all Christians are called to service, to the work of the Lord. So, worship service. Ah, they say it doesn't really go together because a Christian's job is to fall down in their life before the Lord and their life is to be one of work for the Lord of service. Maybe that's enough there. So how does one worship in spirit and truth? It's not possible. And this is why the sign given to Cornelius was so important. It is not possible to worship God as a Christian, without the Holy Spirit in your life. It's just simply impossible. That's why the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon people was the sign of a converted Christian. That's why there was no doubt to Peter what happened with the Gentiles at Pentecost. In, in Acts eleven fifteen through 18, I told you we were going to cover six of those verses today. It says... As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And with that, the opposition to, divine, um, to the divine in- initiative by the circumcision party ended. But back now to Christian worship. What is it to look like? But beyond not knowing exactly what the worship service looked like, we do know certain things about them. We do know, even if we don't have an example, that corporate worship was practiced. Okay? The writer of Hebrews, Paul, shows us that without a doubt, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And note, first of all, that he says, do not neglect gathering together with one another. And note also that even at the time of the writer of Hebrews, that people were saying, ah, we don't have to get together, we're Christians what is the phrase? I'm spiritual, but I don't like church. Or I, I, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that may technically be true. Okay? But it's not the example set forward by the early church fathers, the apostles, uh, the disciples, the writer of Hebrews. If it was Paul, do not neglect getting together. Paul also wrote to the Colossians this. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, part of our worship. In fact, they say that basically every Christian worship closely mimics the elements in Old Testament Jewish worship. Okay, They got together. They sang psalms. Here it says to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We know that there was preaching of the word uh, in the old church, uh, in the early church, because Paul says to Timothy, who he calls uh, his son in the faith, uh, he says to preach the word in season and out. Preaching we know was part of it. Jesus commanded us to celebrate communion and to baptize disciples so that those are a part of true worship when we are together. We also have the Lord's example of reading scripture in the synagogue and in the temple. So we know that the reading of scripture... So these are all examples of what we're to do. We're to sing. We're to preach. We're to read scripture. We're to uh, baptize. We're to take communion so we know how to do those, and yet we do not know how, how they went together. And, and the interesting thing is, if we do not know from Scripture, it's because those are things that we are to do in our lives, and it should be from the outpouring of gratitude that we feel towards the Lord for the salvation we've been granted. Long time ago, I grew up in the Methodist Church, and we would have responsive reading. And, you know, we, we are doing that with the catechism. But in the Methodist Church, it was a lot more pronounced. And at one point I said, what words am I saying here? What am I actually saying? I'm reading words off a page, but am I thinking about them? And I am not going to say that responsive readings are bad. It's that if you replace 
deeply thinking about scripture with responsive readings, you're losing part of what's going on here. I do not know, because I do not see it, that the church had responsive readings, but I do know, I do know that in Paul's letters, he often breaks into a portion, and if you have a Bible that cares about doing that, they'll put it in a different set of type because it's denoting either a catechism that he's quoting from the early church or a hymn or spiritual song, because it's not a psalm and we know that, that he, in Scripture, now has immortalized some songs, some catechisms, some doxologies that we do not know other than apart from Scripture. So we do know that those were a part of of how worship was performed back then. But see, once again, worship wasn't performed. Remembering, of course, that, that we're soon going to take communion. Communion was a communal meal that was abused by the Corinthian church. Uh, and it was an interesting take when I was reading this uh, about the church services, is that In the Corinthian church, there were some very wealthy people who did not work. And there were some very, very poor people who did work very hard. And when they would have their communal meal, the rich people got there early. And it was assumed to be like a potluck, and you brought your own food. And the rich people, who were not the working class, got to the business of eating the communal meal, the communion. And the poor people struggled in, the working class struggled in later in their dirty clothes, washing up the best they could, and the good food was gone, okay? And this is what we talk about when, when Paul is talking about taking communion in an unworthy manner. It is taking for yourself the best parts and leaving aside the other people. That is not what Christianity is trying to do. Well... It's not what Christianity does. Because Christianity is a lifestyle pouring out from within you with love for people and love for the Lord. That's the, that is the point of... That is what God wishes to see in our lives with Jesus in control. So these are all examples that we look to in structuring our own worship here. Jesus said that the Jesus said the building you meet in wasn't important. He says you're not going to be meeting in the temple in the future, here or in Jerusalem. Nor is the size of the congregation important. Where two or more are gathered, there am I also. And I know that that wasn't applying to a worship service. It was actually applying to lawsuits among Christians. And to, and, but that when you meet, Jesus is there when there are two or more. And Puritan scholars say, no, this applies to the church also. When there are two, two believers together, the Lord is with you. So the size of the congregation doesn't matter. All of these elements in our worship mimic 
temple worship uh, of the Old Testament Jews with this important difference. And I've said it earlier. We are to offer our worship not on one day a week. We might only be able to get together one or two days a week. And that's what we do try to do. But we are not to offer our worship one day a week. Not in an ornate edifice. But every hour of every day of our lives, in circumstances humble or grand, we can meet in this church. We can meet in my house. We can meet outside under a tree like they used to do at Twin Peaks in the olden days. But we're to meet out of the overflowing gratitude and love for the Savior that God has sent us, not as part of our worship, but the most important and consuming and all-encompassing focus of our lives. And the party of the circumcision is going to figure this out. And they will come around, but there is going to be a little bit more trouble we face with the circumcision party, with the Judaizers. And we'll see that. But we face still today, even with more information that they have, we have factions and we have factions that we think are not doing Christianity correct. To get it wrong at this very beginning, I I guess I'm doing a little apology for the, the Judaizers here because they were working off of what they had previously been given and did not have what we have. We have less excuse when we worship incorrectly, when we live our lives incorrectly, than they did. Let's close in prayer.